Have you wonder, ever wondered what it might have been like that Christmas night in heaven? Son of God was born, laid in a manger, having been wrapped in swaddling clothes. And, and God has a plan to send a messenger, an angel to the shepherds. And I, I doubt that he put it out there as a, who would like to go, because there'd be too many hands, too many angels vying for that. So I'm sure he, he's chosen one messenger and he says, this is the message I want you to bring the shepherds. And so the, the angel goes down. And he's surrounded by the glory of God. And they, of course, are in great fear. And he says, do not fear. For I bring you good news of great joy. For today in the city of David has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, what else is happening up in heaven? For Luke tells us that a heavenly host breaks forth and praises God, saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom God is well pleased. And I have this sense that God didn't say, you know, okay, the first messenger has gone out and given the message. Now, will the rest of you angels go down and praise me? I, I don't think God was asking for volunteers. I think the heavenly host broke forth onto earth. They couldn't contain their joy. They couldn't contain their celebration. And so they were praising God and crying out glory to God in the highest. For the angels throughout the years had been watching all that was taking place on earth. They watched God's wonderful creation and they saw the fall and all the damage that sin did as it brought death and disease and hurt and heartache. They also knew of God's plan that he would send a Savior and now it had finally come. They could not contain their joy because they understood from a heavenly vantage point what it meant that Christ was coming in a way that we probably could never grasp here on earth. That night, heaven broke into earth with praise of God. In the Gospel of John, John goes in the sense one step further. He brings us up into heaven to allow us to, to enter into eternity. For he begins his Gospel saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He brings us right back to the beginning. Before creation, before history, in fact, in the very beginning, before the beginning, the Word already was. This word translates the Greek logos, which I want to use tonight. Three times logos is used in this first verse, and it shows that this is a very important title for the one we know as Jesus. And so from eternity past, it says, the Word who is unveiled to us later as the Son of God 
was with God. He's been with God forever. But then it also reveals that he actually was God and is God. Of course, this is the foundation of the Trinity itself. Later in the Gospel, John is going to tell us what they've been doing. They've been celebrating each other with an eternal love relationship where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit revolved themselves around one another and glorified each other, treasuring each other from eternity past. And now, God sends the Lagos to earth. Now, for us that word doesn't have a tremendously deep meaning other than to translate it the word. But it was well known in the culture of that day, both the Hebrews and the Greeks understood the concept of alagas, although a bit differently. The Hebrews, the lagos, the word, was the word of God. So the word of God was that which created, for God spoke and all came into being. The word of God was the self-revelation of God that he gave throughout Scripture. The word of God was the commandments and the pathway in which we are to walk. The word of God is the one who is going to bring deliverance, the one who has made the covenant. And Lagos is even placed in the Septuagint in the place of the word Yahweh on occasion. So for the the Hebrew to hear that the Logos has come means that God in the fullness of his revelation of himself has come to earth. The Hebrews expected a king. They expected a Messiah. They expected one who would who would save them as a nation. They could never imagine that it would be God himself who would come to earth. And in John 1.14, John says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt can be translated tabernacled among us. And of course, to any Jewish mind, they know what the tabernacle is. The tabernacle is where Moses met God, where people could go to meet God. For in the holy of the holies within that tabernacle, God dwelt and people could go to him. And so the Logos has come, God himself has come to tabernacle, to be that tabernacle presence. Not just for people to come to him, but for him to go out. For him to bring a presence so we could know God. How would God live if he came to earth? What is God like? We see that in the revelation of Jesus Christ himself. And we can ask the question, does God understand? And we see that God came and endured everything that we endure. Every pain, every question, every challenge, every sense of loneliness, he endured it to a greater extent than we do. For God has come. For the Greek, the Logos was a a concept. It was a concept of the soul of the universe, the rational principle of life from which all life flows. 
And if you could grasp the logos, you would have full understanding of life itself. You would know what the purpose of life is. You would understand how everything in life is meaningful and how it all fits together. The Logos makes sense of the world and the universe. The Logos is truth. And so the Greek person who hears that, hears the Logos has come. Augustine, very well-known Christian, was first involved with Greek philosophy. And he says at one point, he says, you know, I studied the Platonists. And I studied the concept that John talks about here of the Logos and how the Logos creates and the Logos is life and the Logos is light. I, I read all of that in the Greek philosophers. What I did not read were John's words. And the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And he says, And these are the words that I never read in Greek philosophy. But as many as received him, he gave power to be the sons of God. He knew the Logos. He could never imagine that the Logos would come and live within us. But not only live among us, but say, I will receive you as the son of God if you receive me. But John continues. He gives us that picture. And now the Logos steps onto earth. But he says in verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him, there was nothing made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So if the Logos created everything, then that means all of creation is an extension of who he is. That life does have a purpose. That everything in life is meaningful. That we can understand our world when we understand the Lagos and see the world from his perspective. It also says the Lagos is God. Therefore, our world has, in many ways, the image of God across it. And that we ourselves are made in God's image. What John's talking about is our world is a place that has all the answers, that can answer the doubts we have, that offers life and vitality, purpose and meaning and truth itself. But John continues. He says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
The light has come, but the light has come into darkness. The Lagos has come into a world that doesn't understand, and many do not receive him. In fact, the darkness itself will try to extinguish him, but it will not be able to extinguish him. Today, we live in a world that is filled with darkness. Although the miracle has come, we're not receiving him. And what we're, what's being espoused today as enlightenment leaves us with nothing. I want to bring you some of the words of our philosophers that resound today, even if they lived before us. Bertrand Russell, whose classic work, Why I'm Not a Christian, is the foundation for almost every argument I hear even today against Christianity. This is what he says about faith, hope, and love. Man's origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. All the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. He continues as he talks about our achievements and all that we're going to accomplish. The whole temple of man's achievements must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of the universe in ruins. Only on a firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Without Christ, the encouragement is to build our life on despair. Kenneth Hitchens, very popular uh, author today, atheist. This is what he says we can build our lives upon. We have the same job we always had. To say that there are no final solutions, there is no absolute truth, there is no supreme leader, there is no totalitarian, totalitarian solution. There are no answers. Richard Dawkins, another very popular author today, says, we do have a scientific understanding of why we are here. Therefore, we have to make up our own meaning to life. We have to find our own purposes in life, which are not derived directly from our scientific history. What he's saying is, we're created by evolution, but we can't live that way because evolution gives us no purpose. So make up a purpose if you want to live with any kind of meaning. Stephen Hawking says this about eternity. I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when the components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken-down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. I hope our hearts bleed for these people who have no hope because all hope is in Christ. And when he is not accepted, you try to create a world that really is fairy tales because it has no basis in the truth. But 
the light, the Lagos shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not overtake it. When we read these words, they go against what our hearts tell us. Because our philosophers tell us there is no purpose, and yet our heart says there, there must be a purpose. Uh, our philosophers tell us uh, our accomplishments are, are nothing. They're, they're just dust. We say, I, 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 we matter. And the philosophers say we're a collocation of atoms, and we say, no, I, I have an identity that's much more than a collocation of atoms. The philosophers tell us there is no eternity. And yet the Bible says eternity is written on our hearts. There must be something more. A journalist who's written a lot for Atlantic Monthly and Rolling Stone and Harper's, an atheist, said this. Our trusted tools of intellect and learning have dismantled religious belief. But we now sense something that eludes those trusted tools. We're finding that we have inexplicable metaphysical feelings. Religion starts with the question, what's true? Is this all there is? Now, unlike believers, we did not have a ready answer to that question. But unlike atheists and other agnostics, we can't help but hear in that question the possibility of something beyond. I've tried to answer this question, or at least muffle the question, in all the custom ways. All of my life, love, achievement, stuff, therapy, but they did not answer the question. Our hearts tell us that there is a logos, there is a truth, there is an eternity, there is a purpose, there is meaning to what we do. And we can't get away from that. She cannot get away from that, yet has no answers. Pascal put it this way. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace? This he tries to fill in vain with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there, the help he cannot find in those that are. Though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, God himself. We all have these longings. We all try to fill them. And Pascal has put it, only God himself can fulfill him because he is the creator and he has sent his son. And so the light has come into the world and the darkness could not overcome it. Jesus came into this world. A world that says all that we do is meaningless. And yet those who follow him say, no, you can do things that last for eternity. What you do in your lives may be wood, hay, or stubble and really do nothing in the future but be burned up. But others build with gold and silver and precious stones that are refined. They last forever. 
Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the very substance of life. Purpose is found in the life that I give you. For I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. That life of a living relationship with God, whereby we become all God meant us to be, and we give him the honor and glory that is due his name, and find satisfaction in glorifying him just as the angels did, because they knew him fully. And death is conquered. For Christ said, there is an eternity. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And whereas faith, hope, and love seem to be nothing, to the Christian they're everything. Because the God who is love offers us a hope for eternity and enters into this world and gives us a moral standard to follow. Love God with your entire being and love your neighbor as yourself. And God himself so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will never perish, but have eternal life. We have two systems here. One which offers nothing, the other that offers in Christ everything. Which does your heart resonate with? What do you know deep down in your being is true? That you mean something, that you matter, that there is purpose, that you have a spirit that is is going to live on when the body is gone? The world hopes for a miracle. In God, in Jesus Christ. Bertrand Russell says, the only real foundation of our life should be despair. Christ says, come and know me and you will have the fullness of joy. He said to his disciples, these words have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy would be complete. The angel came to the shepherds and said, my message is good news of great joy. The angels burst forth, the heavenly hosts cried out in joy, praise God, glorify God. In the highest. Luke says that when the shepherds returned, they had the same spirit that those joyous heavenly hosts had. For it says, they returned praising and glorifying God. And the Magi, when they once again saw the star and knew they were going to meet the King of Kings, the scripture says, They were filled with exceedingly great joy. Despair, joy. Christmas means the Logos has come to give life meaning, help us to understand it and know us. The Logos has come. Christmas means joy to the world. 
The Lagos has come. The King has come. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Our Father, we thank you for your love, the vastness of it. When we did not love you, when we turned aside from you, yet you never turned aside from us. You never stopped loving us. You never let us just go our own way, but you kept pursuing us and pursuing us and pursuing us and finally bringing us yourself. Oh, Lord, I pray that this message will resonate in every heart here, in every heart that celebrates Christmas, in every heart that questions it. Amen.